A few years ago, a movie came out called The Bucket List, which was about a couple terminally ill old men who set out to complete a wish list of things that they wanted to do before they died. In other words, things that they wanted to do before they kicked the bucket, hence the term The Bucket List. I don't know if I doubt the movie invented the term, but it definitely popularized the idea of a bucket list. It brought it to the forefront of our minds. And now, lots of people have begun developing their own bucket lists, including things like all kinds of things. Like, sometime before I die, I want to be able to travel to Paris or Australia or some other exotic place in the world. Or, I want to be able to run a marathon, or run a 10K race one day, or I want to be able to get a chance to, I don't know, swim with dolphins, or learn to ride a horse, these types of things. It could be even bizarre, like someday, before I die, I want to watch a sunset in Switzerland while eating a Subway sandwich on a ski slope. <laughs> it could be anything. On your bucket list. I don't personally have one. Uh, I'm sure I could come up with one, if I, a basic one, if I wanted to. I'm sure there would be places that I'd love to travel to on it. But Ireland or Rome, Dubai, those are some of the places I want to get to. Or, or things I want to be able to do or experience with my family, my wife or kids one day. I'm sure you could also think of a few things you'd love to do or accomplish before you pass away one day. Things you'd love to do while you're alive. Well, did you know that the Bible tells us of one thing that we absolutely must do before we die? There is something that God tells us should be, no, needs to be on our bucket list. It it is something that is so important that it will radically change your life. It is something so vital that it actually changes what kicking the bucket even means. And it is something so urgent that it cannot just be added to a list to eventually get to do one day. A number of us may have already done this. You could say that we've already checked this off on our list. But it should still, I believe, have far-reaching and transformative effects on our lives every day. And some of us here, I believe, probably haven't ever done this in our lives. What I'm speaking of is what the Bible calls repentance. Repentance. Above all else in our lives, before we die, we must repent. Which means to turn away from our sins that are in our lives and turn to our, to turn Jesus as Lord and Savior over our lives. That's what it means to repent, to turn from our sins and turn to Christ. We need to repent, we need to keep repenting, and we need to urge others to repent as well. Today we're going to see why this is so important by reading a story that Jesus told in Luke 16. So if you would, Please turn there with me now to Luke 16. We'll be starting in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can take one from the pew in front of you and find this story on page on page 876. Page 876 will get you to Luke 16. 
course, we're back in the Gospel of Luke once again, one of the historical accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. Today brings us to one of the more interesting passages in Luke for a number of reasons. Uh, I want to begin, as I always do, you find your place by praying for us. So if you would please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look into these pages of your word today, we pray that we would know that these are your words. These are words from God intended for us, and words that have the ability to change our lives, if we'll let them. I pray that you would soften our hearts, you would open our eyes, help no heart to be closed off to you this morning, and pray that you would show us the urgency and the importance of living for you now, not putting it off, not ignoring it. We pray that your spirit would work on our hearts to this end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 19, Jesus is actually going to jump right into telling the story without any notes of context. So right before I read it, it's necessary to quickly remind ourselves of what's going on here, what's going on in the backstory. In chapter 16... Jesus was speaking publicly to a mixed crowd of both his followers and his enemies. They're all mixed together. And at first, he spoke to his disciples at the very beginning of the chapter, talking to them about living for eternity's sake, particularly when it came to their use of money and possessions. And he ended verse 13 by telling them, you cannot serve God and money. Very popular verse, famous verse, I should say. Well, The Pharisees, who were his most frequent opponents and were in this crowd, scoffed at this. And it said in verse 14 that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So, Jesus then turns his attention to them, warning them that many of these things, their money and their possessions, many of these things that they were living for, were actually abominable in God's sight. Detestable. They thought that they were being righteous and good and clean, but their hearts weren't. Their hearts were dirty on the inside. God's standards were vastly different than theirs, and they were totally missing this. They were missing the point of the law that they were trying to follow so faithfully that it should point out the sins in their lives. They were missing the sins that were in their own hearts. They were missing the Messiah right in front of them who could save them from those sins. And they are missing the absolute urgency of eternity. In verse 19, where we'll start today, Jesus is still especially speaking to the Pharisees. And this whole story really acts as an indictment against them. But I think today we should read it carefully and pay very close attention Because I think far more often than we'd like or than we'd hope, we exhibit signs of being like the Pharisees. Especially when it comes to our neglect of repentance and eternity. Okay, so we need to pay attention. This story from Jesus, I think, can help shake us from our Pharisaical malaise. We're not told whether this is a parable, so a fictional story with a spiritual point, or whether this is a true-to-life story that actually happened. We can't really tell for sure. 
Either way, true story or fictional parable, it packs a powerful punch. Okay? The story tells the tale of two men who are held in drastic contrast to each other. And the first few verses describe their lifestyles. Read with me in verse 19. It says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Wow. Could these two men's lives have been any different, more different? They were neighbors, but their lives were worlds apart. The rich man, we see, lived this lavish lifestyle. He lived well, he dressed well, he ate well. It says he was, as he was rich, he obviously had lots of money and wealth. And he didn't spare any expense on living luxuriously. It says he had a home with a gate, which implies it would have been a gate like a palace. This was, the only people who had gates in those days were very rich people. It says he was clothed in purple, like royalty, and fine linen, costly exports from faraway lands. It said he feasted sumptuously every day. What a great word. Sumptuously. Every meal was delicious. The best delicacies, the finest wines, all the time. Most likely, when he lives like this, he obviously probably had some family and friends that adored him, would have been popular, people trying to get in on this. And from all appearances, he seemed healthy, without a care in the world. Meanwhile, the other guy was a man. It's about all they had in common. It says he was a poor man, destitute, penniless, jobless. Homeless. He was, it also says he was quite unhealthy, covered with sores. So he's so afflicted by these sores that it says he had to be laid at the rich man's gate where he would beg. Apparently, he couldn't even walk by himself, had to be carried around. He was also starving. He smelled. These barbecues and feasts at the rich man's house. And he longed to be able to eat from the rich man's table. Actually, that, that's too ambitious. It says that he longed to eat just the crumbs from the table. That's how hungry he was. For all we know, he was completely ignored. Not even getting the crumbs. He longed for it. But he is ignored. Finally, adding insult to injury and then some, Jesus says that he was abused by animals. It said, moreover, in verse 21, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The dirty street dogs would come up to him. They liked licking his open sores. This man was basically like a piece of dead meat lying in the street. I don't think we can imagine much worse. 
Unlike the rich man, though, the poor man was given a name in the story. Did you see that? The rich man, we don't know who he was. The poor man is given a name Lazarus. Now, this is definitely a different Lazarus than Jesus' friend that he raised from the dead. But even his name was very ironic. It was, Jesus did this on purpose. As the name Lazarus means God has helped me. If anyone had the appearance of not being helped by God, it was Lazarus. So we have this prosperous, plentiful man on the one hand and a pathetic pitiable man on the other. One seems to have everything, the other has nothing. But then verse 22 comes, and verse 22 changes everything for them. The great equalizer comes to both of them. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So you see what happens here? It's a complete role reversal. Absolute, total reversal. The last become first, and the first become last. But the one inescapable truth we see in these opening verses is very simple. And it applies to every single one of us, no matter who we are. Okay? It's this. Eternity will come to us all through death. Okay? Death comes to us all, which means eternity will inevitably come to us all. No matter what we do, or what we own, or what we accomplish, or how healthy we are, death will come to us all one day. Unless the Lord returns first, you will die one day. Didn't know that. Sorry to surprise you. No matter how much money is in your bank account, you will leave it behind. No matter how much insurance policies you have, they can't ensure that you won't die. No matter how emotionally healthy you are, no matter how many friends you have, your social life, you'll pass away one day. Okay? No matter how many miles you run, no matter how many sports you play, your body won't last. No matter how many vitamins you take, no matter how many broccoli tofu flavored shakes you down, you can't halt the inevitable end that we'll, we will all face one day. The rich man couldn't escape it. Poor man couldn't escape it. Neither will I, and neither will you. Now, I know you all know this. It's an obvious reality of our lives. However, I don't, we sure don't like thinking about it very much, do we? I think we have to, though. I think it's healthy. If death is inevitable, it does us no good to conveniently ignore that fact. If death is coming, we can't ignore it. We have to contemplate our deaths and consider what comes after death. Is that all there is? This is why it is crazy to only live for this life, because this life is not all there is. We will all face eternity one day and stand before the judgment seat of God, and we must absolutely determine whether or not we are ready to do so. 
death is the great equalizer. However, not all is equal in death. You see that in the story? There was a huge contrast in the rich and the poor man's lives, but there was an even greater contrast in their deaths. Okay? If the first point today speaks to the inevitability of eternity, the second point for today speaks to the two conditions or two states of eternity. And that is that eternity will consist of heaven or hell. Okay? For every one of us, our eternity will entail existing forever in either heaven or hell. There are no middle grounds. There are no other options. There's no such thing as a purgatory. There's no snuffing out of our souls. Not everything is an either-or proposition, I know. But according to the Bible, eternity is. All of us will be buried. Not all of us will be carried to God's throne. Did you see this play out in the story before us? Let's read it again. Verse 22. It says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So these men had two very different lives. Now they had two very different destinations. After Lazarus died, Luke says he was carried by angels into heaven. Specifically, he was carried to Abraham's side, it says. Or as the footnote clarifies, it's to Abraham's bosom. You know the old Sunday school song? Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. <laughs> Is there any more bizarre Sunday school song out there? <laughs> Did anyone really know what that's talking about? <laughs> I know I didn't as a little kid. But what we learn here is Abraham's bosom is simply a term that Jesus uses to refer to heaven, to glory. And it implies that when believers die, they enter the presence and the company and the fellowship of great saints that went before us. That's what it implies. It seems from this that certain saints will minister in some ways to others in heaven, to believers. It says, Abraham... The father of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, was one of these. The poor man died, Abraham ministers to him. But what a neat thought, eh? Like when we die, if we go to heaven, if we're saved, we'll get to meet and and mingle with Abraham and Moses and David and others. But I'll tell you this. It's a far greater thought that we'll be able to be carried to the bosom of Jesus. To be in his presence, and his company, and his fellowship. Now that is a glorious existence. On the other hand, we have the rich man. It says the rich man entered into an awful, agonizing existence. In verse 23 it says he was in Hades, which is technically not hell. Theologically, Hades is the precursor to hell. The place where the wicked go when they die before the resurrection and the judgment. But Hades might as well be the beginning of hell. Because it seems equally dreadful. 
equally awful. The Bible never talks about the righteous going to Hades. Okay, so if you're saved, you don't have to fear that. This is not purgatory. It is the beginning of eternal torment. Look at how it describes the rich man's condition after his death. It says in verse 22, halfway through, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. This is what happens to the unsaved after they die. It is not funny. It is not pretty. Now, I want you to ponder for a second. That this is what you and I deserve. It's what every one of us deserves when we die. The words that are used here, torment, anguish, flame, anguish again. The the man asks for even a drip of water, like a crumb from a table. But the tables have turned. And he can't receive any water. Now, we don't know if some of the details of this scene might be figurative. If this is a parable, a good amount may be symbolic in some ways. We don't know. We don't know if you can actually see people in one location from the other. We don't know if you'll actually be able to talk to one another. We don't know if hell will have literal flames. But even if this were figurative in some way, it doesn't take away from the horror of hell. I mean, what would torment and anguish and flame be figurative of? A nice day at the beach? Refreshing swim in the pool? Whatever this does or does not tell us about hell, it definitely implies that it is horrible. Now, this applies to the story as a whole, really. We don't know if all the details are precise, but the story definitely communicates some clear truths, that there are two destinations, okay? One is a joyful, blissful, blessed life, and the other is a terrifying, tormenting, and terrible life. C.S. Lewis was once told about a gravestone inscription that read, Here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And Lewis quietly replied, I bet he wishes that were so. There is a place to go. Whether you're saved or unsaved, righteous or wicked. Now some of you likely ask the age-old question, how could a loving God 
ever send people to hell? Right? We all, we've asked that question at one time or another. But in asking this question, we underestimate God's holiness and the seriousness of sin. God is perfect in love, but he is also perfect in holiness and righteousness and justice. And committing treason, cosmic treason against the infinitely perfect God deserves infinite punishment. If there wasn't a hell, it would violate God's nature of justice and holiness, which in turn would make God not God. God must punish sin. He has to. It's only in the contrast of that that we actually see his love. And in his love, God gives us a choice to turn to him and turn away from our sin. Or to turn away from him. And it is only because of God's great love and mercy that anyone is safe from hell. The question is not, how could a loving God, loving and holy God send people to hell? The question should be, how could a loving and holy God not send everybody to hell? Now, the rich man in Hades realized this is what he deserved, and so we see him pleading for mercy. It says that he called out in verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He recognized that there was nothing he could do to save himself from this fate, from hell. He couldn't work his way out of it. He couldn't be reincarnated for another chance one day. He couldn't be asked to be sent back to live his life as a poor person. None of those things could save him. Only God's mercy could. But tragically... It was too late for him. See, mercy is readily available, but only for a time. When is mercy available? Well, if you've got air in your lungs at this moment, the answer is right now. Mercy is available to you right now. It is during this lifetime that you're living now. Eternity comes to all, and we'll all enter eternity. But that doesn't make our short lives on earth pointless. Not at all. In fact, your destination and condition in eternity completely depends on your current life. We will go to heaven or hell based on how we live our lives now. Notice how Abraham responded to the rich man's plea. In verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Now, there's no smugness in this response, only sorrow. It was basically basically like he said, You had your chance, and you squandered it. Now, you may wonder when you hear that, when they hear what Abraham said was, these guys' eternity based on their level of living? I mean, in other words, was Lazarus saved because of his poverty? Was the rich man damned because of his wealth or because he ignored the poor? 
I mean, that almost sounds like karma, doesn't it? But no, it's not the case at all. Philip Ryken explains it this way. He says, It was not the fact of Lazarus's poverty that saved him, as if his earthly suffering merited an eternal reward. No, Lazarus was saved by his trust in God. Although this is not stated explicitly anywhere in the passage, it is an obvious and necessary inference from his destination when he died, not to mention the plain teaching of the entire Bible. The point is not that all poor people will go to heaven. The point is rather that people who live only for the things of this world will get nothing from heaven. I would add that later in this passage we see this even more clear. That We see clearly that the necessary response is repentance. Okay? It's not a matter of how rich or poor we are. It's how we respond to God's love. Eternity is approaching. Heaven and hell are coming. May these things loom large in our sight. It's coming quickly every day. There's one more thing we learn from eternity or about eternity from this story. Let's look at how Abraham continues to respond. Verse 25, he said, we read this, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Uh, this verse gives us simultaneously one of the most comforting and most distressing aspects of eternity. And that is that eternity will be permanently irreversible. Once this life is over, our destination is set forever. Eternity will be ir- irreversibly permanent. Verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This is a picture of a great separation, a great divorce between heaven and hell. It's like a huge chasm or canyon has been opened up between the two. And now no one can cross between the two. There are no bridges. There are no plains. No zip lines, no catapults, no teleporting, no nothing. Now, did anyone see the video online a while back of the guy crossing the Grand Canyon by tightrope? Isn't that crazy? It was an incredible feat that most of us, most people in the world would deem absolutely impossible. And how many of you would dare to cross the Grand Canyon on a tightrope? Right? <laughs> yeah liar (laughs) we definitely find that impossible i've stood on the edge of the grand canyon before it is breathtaking and there is no way i would take one step off of that edge there's no way i could ever cross it without a plane or a helicopter oh in the chasm between heaven and hell there isn't even a tightrope to attempt to cross. There is a 
grand canyon between the two that has been eternally fixed in place. Now, if you think about this, this should be a wonderful comfort if you're saved. Okay? This means that once you enter heaven, you will never be sent over to hell. It'll actually be impossible for you to ever be cast out. Abraham says in this, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here in heaven to you may not be able, and none can cross from there to us. So no one can duplicate or relive the devil's fall from heaven. Can't happen. This implies that since sin can't be in God's presence that our souls will be perfected. And we won't be capable of sinning against God anymore. Won't that be wonderful? I can't wait for that. To be totally free from temptation and evil desires and sin and guilt and from ever falling again. Eternity with God will be an irreversibly and gloriously permanent existence. Now, the reverse side of this is that those who end up in hell will never be able to leave either. It says that, that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross from there to us. So hell is also permanently irreversible. Your choice is irrevocable. No one can escape. No one can come rescue you. This explains the utter urgency of responding to Jesus now, doesn't it? But, this is utterly important. While no one can escape or be rescued or even go to rescue people in eternity, all of these can happen now. While you are alive. There is currently a bridge from death to life. A way to escape eternal death. And it is, only, it is through the only man who has ever gone to hell and escaped. You know that we believe when Jesus died, he went to hell and he conquered hell. He triumphed over it. And now we believe that Jesus can rescue anyone from ever entering those fires again. So I urge you, I plead with you, run into Jesus' arms today. Run into his arms. Experience the riches of his love now and forever. Now this leads us right into our last point for today from the final few verses of the story. Our salvation is not based on our poverty or our wealth. It's it's based on our response to God. More specifically, it's based on our response to the revelation that God has given us. To recap, eternity is coming to all, consisting of heaven and hell, permanently and irreversibly. Therefore... Therefore, we must heed God's warnings and repent now.
This is the main application point for us. Because of the urgency of eternity, we must heed God's warnings and repent now. The rich man realizes the grim magnitude of his situation. He makes one more plea. But this time it's not for himself. It's for those he cared about that were still alive. And it's a somewhat noble request, but it's also flawed, and unfortunately, again, it's too late. Read with me in verse 26. So Abraham says that none would be able to pass from here to you, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, and the rich man said, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So do you get what he's asking? If he can't be saved, at least maybe his brothers still stand a chance. And so he asks Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn them of hell. Surely they'd listen to a ghost who shows up and tells them they need to repent. That's what he thinks. But Abraham was like, it's not the way it works. Not the way it works. Besides, they don't need a ghost. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they had the scriptures. They had revelation from God to man. They had the law that would have pointed out the sin in their lives and their need to repent. They had the prophets pointing ahead to a Messiah who could save them from their sins. They had plenty of revelation to see their need to trust in God. It wasn't a matter of receiving new revelation It was a matter of hearing what they already had. They had revelation. And you know what? So do we. Really, we have even more than them. We have the law, the prophets, and the full gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot plead ignorance about the way to get to heaven. If we hear God's word, we will have no excuse before God. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then the rich man responds once more in verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. Now think about what the rich man was saying no about here. No, Father Abraham. Abraham said, let them hear God's word. And he, the rich man goes, no, that won't work. Okay? They won't listen. They need greater revelation than that. What he was essentially saying was that God's word wasn't enough. That it wasn't sufficient. But if someone happened to rise from the dead, ah, that would get their attention for sure. 
But God's word is entirely sufficient. They didn't need greater revelation than what they had, and neither do we. If we refuse to believe what God has told us through the law and the prophets and the gospel, then it doesn't matter what else we see or what else he does. We won't believe. Romans 10, 17, you know the verse? says, faith comes through seeing ghosts. No. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And some of you may feel that in order to believe, God's got to reveal more of himself to you. That you, you need to see some kind of sign in your life, or a miracle. Maybe you want God to show himself to you in some special way, to prove his existence beyond the shadow of a doubt. Like, if God is real, he would do this for me. Or if God wants me to believe in him, he'll show me. But he has shown himself to you. He has revealed himself to you through his word. And you don't need any further or any greater revelation in order to believe in him. He has given us everything we could ever need to know him and love him and follow him. And if this is insufficient for you, then I am scared for your soul. Verse 31 Abraham said to the rich man, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So someone has hardened their hearts to what God has already revealed, and it's likely that nothing will ever truly convince them. Just like the rich man's brothers in this story. And coincidentally, just like the Pharisees. This was such a prophetic indictment against the religious leaders. Think about it. For example, what happened when Jesus raised the better-known Lazarus from the dead? In the verses immediately following that story, the leaders promptly plotted to kill Jesus. Or, more so, The greatest sign history has ever seen, Jesus rose from the dead himself. That should have convinced them, right? But no. What do they do? They try desperately to cover it all up. To make it disappear as if it never happened. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I think that is the craziest part of this story. Someone has risen from the dead. Someone has risen from the dead. This is not just a hypothetical or theoretical situation. Today, we have God's word and we have an empty tomb. The evidence that Jesus died and then rose from the dead is overwhelming. Historically, the, there was no body. 
It was gone. Even Jesus' enemies attested to that. The tomb was empty. There were over 500 eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. Okay? There, something, something transformed Jesus' disciples from cowards into world changers overnight. And if Jesus is risen, it corroborates and verifies everything else he ever said. It confirms that there is a God, that Jesus was God, and that God's word is true. And it makes our repentance absolutely imperative and urgent. But some of you still aren't convinced. I fear that you never will be. This morning, I plead with you to open your mind. Let God soften your heart. Don't go into eternity with everlasting regret. It's now or never. There is no chance to change your mind after you die. You can't cross from death to life at that time. But you can right now. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. You have the opportunity to pass from death to life right here and right now. This is is not just a, a turn or burn message, okay? This is a turn and live. Truly live. God loves you. He died for you. His mercy is available to you. Eternal life is available to you. If only you turn from your sins and turn to Him. I'd love to speak with you, pray with you about this, talk with you, answer questions, anything after the service is done. The urgency is real. You cannot afford to put this off any longer. Now, for those of us who have already believed and repented, I think there's one overarching, fairly obvious application for us today. Besides the fact that we need to keep repenting of those sins that are in our lives. That's pretty obvious, right? We have to keep repenting throughout our life. Whenever sin pops up, keep killing sin. But I think the one overarching one here for us is we have got to reach out to those around us who are on the road towards hell right now. We've got to. Our friends, our family members, our peers at work, our neighbors... While some of them may never truly hear and repent, others are just waiting to hear. God's working in their lives already. They're waiting to hear. God saves people every day. And he may use you to do so. We can take heart from this story 
The task at hand is not that difficult of one. Think about it. They don't need you to perform a miracle or rise from the dead for them. Okay? They don't need you to do that. They don't need you to provide them with absolute proof. They don't even need you to have all the right words to say. They just need you to point them to God's word and the truths in it. And let the Spirit do the rest. (laughs) There is power in God's word. There's power in the Spirit working in people's hearts. So step out in faith. Speak up about what you believe. Trust the Holy Spirit. Take some risks. Take some chances. It may be the last chance that someone you love ever has to respond to the gospel. So if you're putting together a bucket list sometime, thinking about things that you don't want to regret not having done before you die, I challenge you to think eternally. Encourage you to always remember the one all-important thing that God wants on your bucket list. To repent and live for Him. To live for Christ. The Christ who is Lord, who is risen today. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. God has given us more than enough to believe in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today for those here who are struggling with this truth, or wrestling with it. We pray that your spirit would come on them now and convict them. Show them the cross. Show them your grace. May they run into your arms today and find everlasting life, everlasting joy, and hope today. Pray for all of us that we would reach out in love to those who need it most. We would sing of your love every day, tell of your love, speak of your love. We would sing of our Redeemer till the day we die. And even after that. We pray these things in the name of the only one that can save, Jesus Christ. Amen.